When I think about life, I realize how full of distractions and interruptions uh, it is, you know? Some of them, sometimes a distraction is, is welcoming, but some of them, not so much, right? Typically, we don't think of being interrupted or especially being distracted as, as a good thing. You know, we don't want distracted people driving through our neighborhoods or down Wood Street. But what if sometimes the interruptions that we face throughout our lives are actually the work of God? What if he's trying to say to us, hey, I know you're really busy, but look over here. I, I want your help. You know, the past several weeks, we've been talking about seeing the world the way that God sees it. You know, specifically the way that God sees us and seeing others the way that God sees them. We're seeing our resources, our, our money, or even maybe more valuable, our time, the way that God sees it. When you take all of these things, they work together to allow us to see the interruptions, the distractions in our life the way that God sees them, as an opportunity to be witnesses of Christ to the world. You see, witnessing is something that is essential to Christianity, and it's something that has been done both poorly, but also exceptionally throughout history. But what is witnessing actually supposed to look like? You know, when we try to understand our call to be witnesses of Jesus to the world, I think that it's pretty important to take a look at the life of Jesus as the blueprint, the example to follow. Now, the entire story of the Gospels is the greatest witness that the world has ever known. But there is one story in particular that I kind of find to be the the pinnacle story for understanding just whom we are meant to witness to as Christians. And the story comes from the Gospel of Mark, and it starts out in kind of a typical fashion. Jesus was on a boat. And he enters a town. And immediately, pretty much the entire town, a great crowd of people surround him. And a very important person from the town, a synagogue leader named Jairus, approaches Jesus and falls at his feet. It seems that Jairus' daughter is very ill. And he's seeking Jesus' miraculous power to save her life. And so Jesus, being the good guy that he was, he agrees to go and see the girl. And so the result is the entire crowd begins to follow Jesus down the road to Jairus' house in hopes of witnessing a miracle. And this is what Mark's gospel says happens next. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. You know, to understand what's really going on here, we need to talk about something that's uh, a bit uncomfortable. It's something that makes middle schoolers squeal, squirm and squeal, and maybe even some of you. But basically what the English uh, makes it hard for us to understand, but the original language of Greek makes more clear is that this woman has 
a rather peculiar condition, probably a form of cervical cancer, which has caused her to bleed as if she was on her menstrual cycle for 12 years straight. I won't bore you with all the details, but this would have had an incredibly negative effect on her life. Levitical law, the law that the Jewish folks followed back in Jesus' day, stated that basically anything that a woman touched during her monthly cycle was unclean, and that anyone who touched anything that she touched was also unclean. So basically, this lady was an outcast. Nobody wanted to be around her. Not only was she the kind of person who was avoided by just about everyone, but she was also poor. She had impoverished herself in a vain attempt to regain her life. She spent all of her money on doctors who could not solve her problem. All right, we made it through, so back to the story. It says, when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. So remember, we've got an unclean woman in a crowd of Jewish people who all knew her and knew her condition, chasing after a Jewish teacher in hopes of touching his clothing. She was fearless. She had exhausted all of her options. She was desperate, so desperate that she was willing to commit further social suicide just to touch the hem of the garment of a man who she had heard rumors about, might be able to heal her. And this is just a side note, but this should be something that we reflect on every day. When was the last time that I sought after Jesus with this kind of reckless abandon? Her seeking after Jesus with reckless abandon has the result that the scripture told us. She was immediately healed. And we would think, hey, her needs are met. Jesus did his job. The story can end right here. But it doesn't end just yet. It goes on and it says this. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered, yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You see, Jesus realizes immediately that something has happened. Instead of just blowing it off or being like, hey, that was easy. He stops the crowd to find the person who believed with such faith that he could heal them. The disciples think he's crazy. The crowd is probably like, hey, dude, we're trying to get somewhere kind of important. Like, what are you doing? But he insists on taking this interaction one step further. He addresses the woman face to face and further witnesses to her. He makes it clear that to both her and to the crowd around her that Her faith is what healed her. Not any social status, 
not any perceived righteousness or purity or importance, only faith. And remember that this is all happening right smack in the middle of Jesus uh, obliging a religious leader's request. In fact, Jesus is in the middle of a very important task. There's a child dying just down the road. Why is he wasting time? Yet Jesus was not fazed by the interruption that this woman has caused in his mission. And this is the very important lesson that we need to learn from this interaction. Jesus was an important guy. He was doing important stuff every single day. But he was not too busy or too important to stop and witness to the forgotten people, the people who were right there in his path. In case you're concerned about Jairus' daughter, Jesus shows up and saves the day, and she lives, and everyone's happy. So, but the, the point is that when, when he was faced with this woman's interruption of his, of his mission, Jesus faced the same choice that we all have every single day. And I'm preaching to myself here as well. See, we are busy people. We live in a busy world. I wake up every morning, and I have a rough idea of all the things that I need to get, to get done. And I have a rough idea of how long I want that to take. And I'm, listen, I am about as far from a type A personality as you can get. I'm about as, as, as go with the flow as you can get and still actually accomplish something. But that being said, I'm also, I'm task oriented. So when I'm doing something, that's what I'm doing. I'm not a multitasker. I won't even try to pretend that I'm a multitasker. If you interview me for a job in the future and you ask me how am I at multitasking, I will laugh and you'll know. So the point is when I'm interrupted, I am completely thrown off. I don't even know what day it is anymore. So I empathize with you if you're like type A and getting distracted like really throws your game off. But more often than not, we see interruptions as a burden, like one more thing to do, or I'm too busy doing this really important thing to deal with this issue. I'm too busy to actually see this person right in front of me. But when we look at Jesus' life, and especially his attitude and actions with this woman who has suffered from a 12-year hemorrhage, we don't see someone who was disturbed. We don't see someone who was burdened by her presence. We see a man who is not blinded by his own sense of self-importance to see the people everyone else ignored and avoided. He put his important task to the side, and he invested in her life. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we see interruptions the way that God sees them? Do we see people that God has placed in our path as a burden or as an opportunity? And going back to this choice that Jesus had, the choice that we all have every day, it's this. Ignore the distraction or engage the person. I think it's pretty obvious what we should do. We should do what Jesus did. We should engage them. But simply engaging is not quite enough, though. We can be pretty good at engaging people without actually having a consistent Christian witness to them. Christianity has gotten, we'll say, a certain reputation because... 
Well, let's be honest. Our collective track record of engaging people kind of stinks. And in the midst of that, we've got really, I think of, two camps of people as the universal church that we tend to fall into. So the first camp, as I like to call them, are the evangelists. These people are great at doing what they do. They want to tell the whole world about Jesus. They want to tell the whole world that they are sinners and that they need the Jesus that they just told them about. And the tactic can be great, and it can be loving and caring and moving, but it can also be downright hurtful in delivery. That's not the tactic that I recommend. And I'm sure the millions of people out there who have been victimized or traumatized by the church in some way will agree. But understand this, that that being said, we need evangelists. We need people to go and tell the truth. It is an important part of being the church. In fact, the need for this is written all over the New Testament. It says that we are meant to tell the people the truth. In Paul's letter to Titus, he puts it this way. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Then these are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. He's basically saying, here's the gospel Go teach it. Don't be afraid. But the problem comes in when we've got evangelism without any other type of action. It gives us a hit-and-run witness. It makes us feel like, hey, I did something good. I did what the Bible said. Did my job. Check the box. But it isn't good enough. And then there's a second type of hit-and-run witnessing that the church is really, really good at. It's done by people that I like to call the saints. These are are our mercy ministers. This is where we meet the physical needs of people, and we feel good about it. We may travel all the way across the globe to a third world country and install clean water wells, transforming the physical well-being of entire tribes and villages. But then we go home. Maybe even at home, we clothe and feed and even house people who are in desperate need. But that's where our witness ends. And again, these aren't bad things. These are things that we are supposed to do. The Bible teaches us to treat our fellows in this way. But just meeting physical needs without offering spiritual truth, we're just simply helping to ease the physical burden of the human condition. What people need from us as Christians is a commitment to invest in them. A commitment to both serve their physical and their spiritual needs. See, in our story, Jesus healed the woman effortlessly. 
That took no time at all. But he turned around and he took time to invest in her with a spiritual truth that her faith had healed her. That she no longer needed to be subject to laws and righteousness. And this is such an important part of the life of the church that we came up with a really cool name for it. And we talk about it, and we talk about it, we talk about it a lot, and then we talk about it some more. And sometimes we talk about this word so much that we forget to actually do it. It's discipleship. Who knew? Now, a discipleship relationship is one in which transformation happens. It is a relationship of consistent and faithful witness. It's a relationship that happens when someone sees that our words and our actions line up. They see our witness as reliable and worth understanding deeper. And we take the time to invest in these people. It happens when both the physical and the spiritual needs are cared for. But we can only have these types of relationships if we are willing to stop what we are doing and spend time with those who reach out to us for help. You know, some time ago, I was just coming back around to the whole church and Christianity thing, and I had found a church, and I was attending there for a while, sitting all the way in the back, trying to be as nondescript as possible. Honestly, I think I just kept going back because I really liked the music. Um, I had had a previous powerful experience there, and maybe that was also in my mind. But anyway, I had learned through the grapevine that the guy that was the worship leader there uh, had a similar story to mine. And I was interested, because he seemed like he had his life together. So for months, I kind of just watched him. And I watched, and I made a list, I judged him, and I couldn't come up with a reason to think that he wasn't legitimate. So then one day, um, I saw him out at a place where people who are recovering from stories that are similar to ours go on a regular basis, and he saw me. And he approached me, and he said, hey, man, I've been seeing you at church. And I was like, oop. I haven't been hiding very well, apparently. Or, you know, not as well as I thought, but maybe also I just wasn't wearing the whole, like, my life was a train wreck three months ago thing very well, you know? Uh, but anyway, we talked for, for a while, and he found out that I, he just assumed that I played guitar. I don't know what that was all about, but he was like, hey, you play guitar, right? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the next Saturday morning, I was at band practice, and then I was in the band, and, uh, you know... That would have been enough for me. I would have been completely fine with that. But what I found out uh, not too long after that was this guy was not the hit-and-run type. He was an investor. And to tell you the truth, he was the busiest human being that I have ever met in my life. Before too long, he was at my house every Tuesday night between teaching music lessons. He would come over, and we would uh, go through the Bible together. Whenever I needed money, he would pay me work to 
pay me money to do work for him. And about a year later, I found myself living in his home after my roommate passed away and I had nowhere to go. You see, this guy, he taught me what it looked like to live a life that was pleasing to God. He and his wife taught me what a Christian marriage looked like. And then he stood next to me on the day that I got married. See, the point is, before I met Joe, I felt invisible. I kind of wanted to be invisible. And I certainly didn't ever see myself as being a leader of any type. But because of our transformational relationship, I was introduced to this call that God had placed on my life. And since then, many, many others have come into my life to foster me, to grow me, and to get me to where I am today. So, you tell me, how important is it to see unseen people? People who can barely stay sober for a day. People who are lost. People who are rough around the edges. People who smoke, swear, and generally live lives that are so much different than our own. You know, there's a a passage of scripture in Hebrews that gives me a lot to reflect upon, and it's from chapter 12, and it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, each and every person who has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ has done so because of the witness of someone close to them. Someone who did not disqualify them because of their age, their race, their sexual identity, their socioeconomic status, the clothes that they wore, the language that they used. Someone invested in them. Someone invested in you. Someone saw you as an opportunity rather than as a burden. And I know that this is a tough topic because, let's be honest, witnessing is uncomfortable. It makes us think about others rather than ourselves. It requires to talk about a subject that culture has labeled taboo and almost shameful. But the reality is that you don't need to stand outside on the corner with a megaphone and a bunch of scary signs about hell in order to be a witness of Jesus Christ. In fact, I'd really like it if, that if you didn't. And if you insist, please not on the corner of Maine and Douglas. <laughs> All that you need to do is begin the process of witnessing, of investing in someone. Because I believe that for each and every one of us, there is no greater power to be found in our entire lives than the power at work between a mentor and a disciple. So I want to read for you an adaptation from a piece of literature that I have found to be particularly profound, which, in all honesty, it says all that I wish to impart on you for today. 
And it says this. Even the newest of Christians finds undreamed rewards as he tries to help his brother or sister, the one who is blinder than he. This is indeed the kind of giving that actually demands nothing. He does not expect his brother sufferer to pay him or even to love him. And then he discovers that by the divine paradox of this kind of giving, he has found his own reward whether his brother has received anything or not. His own character may still be gravely defective, but he somehow knows that God has enabled him to make a mighty beginning, and he senses that he stands at the edge of new mysteries, joys, and experiences of which he had never even dreamed. To watch the eyes of men and women open with wonder as they move from darkness into light. To see their lives quickly fill with new purpose and meaning. To see families reassembled. To see the outcast received back into his community in full citizenship. And above all, to watch these people awaken to the presence of a loving God in their lives. These things are the substance of what we receive as we carry Christ's message to the next lost soul. What a shame it would be to miss out on the beauty of witnessing a life changed right before your eyes because you are too busy to be interrupted. My prayer is that you might begin to have your eyes opened to the opportunities that God places before you every single time that someone in need is put in your path. That they won't be a burden demanding your time and your resources, but an opportunity for you to experience the fullness and richness of Christ's witness in your life. And the opportunity for you to play a part and be a witness to the redeeming power of Christ, which is revealed in the life of your brother and sister coming alive in his grace. Let's pray. Holy God, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your witness in our life through those who have taken time to invest in us. God, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the opportunities that you place before us to be a part of your mission in this world, to seek out and save the lost. Let us see the distractions, the interruptions in our lives the way that you see them, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.